Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Fair Data Podcast, where we discuss all things fair, making data findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable. I'm Rory McNeil, host of the Fair Data Podcast, and my guest today is Relitza Matson. Relitza is Sir Henry Welcome Fellow at the UCL Cancer Institute and an active open science practitioner and advocate. Relitza, welcome. It's great to have you on the podcast. Hi, Rory. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, great. So let's let's get started by by diving in. So all researchers are by definition interested in data, since it's the lifeblood of their work. But your interest goes beyond data in the strictly scientific sense. I think it extends to explicitly thinking about managing and using data more effectively to enhance the quality of your research. So tell us a bit about how you developed this perspective and interest. Presumably, this was part of your personal growth as a scientist. Um, yeah, so that's an interesting question, and I think uh, it partly boils down to uh, personality. And I think you are a particular person when you decide to become a scientist, and you tend to, or you should at least, I think, tend to be obsessed with with the truth or getting as close to the truth as possible. So. Uh, I would like to think of myself as being that type of person. So I'm always very, very worried about um, results potentially being confounded or wrong or some error somehow slipping in without me noticing. So um, for me, getting into um, you know proper rigorous data management was a way to minimize the errors uh, that could potentially affect my research. So how can I be sure that what I'm studying reflects an aspect of the truth? And this obsession with minimizing uh, the error as much as possible was what drove me into um, understanding and learning about uh, fair data, good data management practices. It also is a way for me to stop and actually think about my data uh, rather than focusing consistently on getting as much out um, as much data out as possible. So that's quantity. It's also about stopping and asking yourself, well, is the quality of my data okay? Can this be trusted? And would other people be able to use it? Can I myself use it three years from now? So it's a way of becoming more efficient as well as more certain in the validity of, of my own data. So really it boils down to, to, to rigor and I think it's a winning strategy in, in the long run, but it requires that sort of realization early on and seeing the benefits that this has long-term. That's really interesting. Uh, really interesting. I wasn't, I wasn't kind of expecting that answer, but it's really interesting. So the two things which I think are, in, are the personality aspect, which is, which is clear, um, it, it clearly makes sense. And, and, and you're really developing it kind of as an as a, an internal quality control mechanism, so to speak, you know, which is, uh, um, and I've, I've seen that myself in, um, in your research. So fascinating. So, so anyway, what, what is the focus of, of your current research? Um, so for a very long time now, my research has been focused on a gene, uh, gene called PIK3CA. So it's one of the most commonly mutated genes in, in cancer. And it's also a gene that is uh, mutated in very much the same way in a group of rare overgrowth disorders, which do not lead to cancer. So one of the things that I'm focusing on is how the mutations of, in this gene um, actually operate in a context-dependent manner. So broadly speaking, what I'm trying to understand is... Uh, cell physiology or, or cell pathophysiology from a systems view perspective. So looking at the effect of this mutation at um, across an entire cellular system, across different contexts, and whether this understanding can then help us to identify better ways of uh, better ways for therapeutic targeting 
uh, long term. So it involves a lot of data, a lot of um, a lot of so-called omics data, where you're, where you're looking at all the different parts um, of of the so-called cell signaling network. Uh, it's a little bit of jargon, so it might be a little bit difficult to understand, but I like to think about it a bit as as if you're trying to understand the functioning of a computer by looking at all the wires as opposed to just looking at one individual component. Uh, because if the computer is broken, you need to know how the whole system is wired up together as opposed to just how one component works, you know, if you need to fix it. <laughs> um, so that's that's uh, it's a lot of, of cell biology joined up with um, some of these um, new fields of um, network data analysis. Yeah. So could you could you um, thanks for that background? Could you could you d- dive down a bit and then maybe relate the the, the data man- the particular data management challenges which your field of research and, and the kinds of data, the omics data and the network things that you were mentioning, how how what what particular data management and kind of quality control um, issues th- does that throw up for you? So first of all, there's the issue with uh, space. Um, these types of data take up a lot of space. So it's actually, um, first of all, you need to be in a place that has this infrastructure, that the, the, the appropriate storage capacity uh, for your for your data and also automatic backups, etc., so that you don't lose um, these data. Uh, it's very expensive to generate these uh, big data uh, this big, these big, big data sets. Um, the second issue is when it comes to data analysis, um, especially when you're dealing with such big data sets, uh, the analysis is quite modular. So you have uh, many different steps, parts of different workflows and documenting those workflows uh, consistently and transparently is really, really important for the purpose of reproducibility and further use uh, of the data. So again, one needs to keep in mind that at every step um, it's important to be as clear and as transparent as possible regarding the steps that have been taken. So that comes down to, you know, you need to have some awareness of bioinformatic tools or coding tools such as R, for example, use of notebooks um, so that all the analysis are documented. So so that's another, so that's another aspect of it, you know, knowing, getting into um, understanding good coding practices um, and linking it up with um, these these big data sets quite often you actually can't have the data stored on your computer long term so you need to make sure that whatever solution you have chosen is joined up with whatever local analysis you're performing um i don't know if that makes sense but basically uh, you need at each and every step you need to document exactly where the data are how they have been processed if they have been moved to a different location how can they be accessed how is this linked to whatever analysis you're uh, performing uh in the in 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 the given moment um so um a lot of moving parts, I would say, and usually these analysis also performed over long periods of time. Uh, so you need to be able to go back into them very quickly and, and, and understand what has been going on. So again, that documentation uh, becomes key. And sometimes it's very easy to just uh, brush over it and say, oh, I'll remember what I've been doing. But most of the time you realize it's not the case and it's hugely beneficial to actually apply these fair um, data principles early on, uh, even at the simplest uh, analysis steps. At least that's what I found very beneficial for my own work. And it also obviously helps others uh, trust your work. 
uh, maybe one thing I should say is also with in terms of because I'm an experimental biologist, so obviously all of these I'm not just doing computational analysis, so there needs to be a very clear documentation of exactly how the experiment was performed. And again, you need a way of linking those experimental that experimental information with the downstream uh, data. Um, and as we as you know, and as I've presented in other um, fora. Um, uh, our space actually has been one of those uh, tools that I've been that I found quite useful um, in, in in that sense. You know, the, the sort of interoperability and the ability to link different data sets together and different experimental interests together, I think, um, is quite important. Yeah, interesting. So this comes back to your your original kind of self self imposed uh, quality control and 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 just listening to you describing the the kind of breadth of of things that are that are involved in your work with the, the creation of the of the big data, of the running the analytics, keeping track of the experiments. As you say, there's a lot of uh, moving pieces or, or balls to keep up in the air. And then uh, you don't have to keep, just have to keep the balls up in the air, but you have to uh, document each of them carefully. And the other thing which which strikes me must be a challenge is that, that there are, I mean, unfortunately, the typically the, the the tools that are available or the infrastructure that's available for each of these things is is they're they're different for the different things you described. So the ability to have um, some interoperability that you can that but uh, kind of um, uh, an interoperability that that you can that you can form this, the 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 uh, the nature of the interoperability sounds like a critical. Uh, without it, you couldn't really do the kind of quality control that you you actually are doing. Is, is that is that right? Yes, yes. And even then, uh, I mean, there's obviously in the perfect world, you would have complete interoperability and complete fluidity, if you like, from one tool to the other. So when you update one thing, something else that's linked to it will be updated automatically. That's not quite where we are yet. But still, I find... Uh, the use of electronic solutions in this case has been absolutely transformative and essential in my in my work because if I were still to rely on conventional paper lab books, for example, well then every single time I had updated something electronically in an analysis, in a say uh, in a computational analysis, which can only be done on the computer, then if I wanted to make sure that this information is then also reflected in the original experimental entry I was working on, and then I would have to go back to the paper lab book identity which page was the song, cross things out, write new things. Whereas with the electronic solutions, you can quickly search if you have um, consistent IDs um, that link different uh, project components uh, together, then you can, you can go back to your experimental entry electronically, change, make sure the information is updated so that everything is actually traceable and that uh, whatever changes you've made in the downstream analysis is now also reflected in your overall description of the experiment, which may be part of your electronic lab book, for example. So it also requires a lot of discipline to actually go back and do these things to make sure that things are joined up together in the long run and not just at the beginning when you had a good intention of being rigorous, but then you got busy and you started analyzing, but you didn't update your like, other electronic uh, records, for example. I don't know if that makes sense, but um, it still requires a lot of manual manual discipline, if you like, until we get to a point in the future where these things have just automatically joined up together. You're a, a staunch advocate and practitioner of of open science, and so a couple of a couple of questions, maybe in that regard. The first, that, first is how how did that come about? Uh, uh, how did you get 
involved in open science. And the second is, I mean, it sounds to me from, from what you're, you know, just, I don't think it's a separate topic from what we were just discussing. It seems like a, a natural follow on because the whole notion of open science really implies uh, a strong electronic, if you will, multivariate and strong electronic infrastructure, because otherwise you can't really share things openly. So, so talk a bit about open science, if you would. Yeah. So it, it, it again, it goes back to this um, personality trait or my personality in a way and the inclinations that I mentioned earlier, but also it's um, a combination of luck and, and chance and being nurtured by the right mentor and being supported. So I happened to start my PhD at a time when if you like the tectonic plates of the biomedical research landscape were starting to shift quite substantially. And this was caused by the realization of or discussion about the reproducibility crisis. And I know that some people actually spend a lot of time discussing whether there is an actual reproducibility crisis and what really drives it. So it's not for me to discuss this, but the truth is that this topic topic spurred a wider discussion about research culture, about questionable research practices. Uh, and ultimately it's, it forced us to ask the question, what drives scientific conduct? And we don't operate in a vacuum. And as scientists, we are heavily influenced by external factors that determine whether or not we may get money to continue our research. And also the incentives uh, within the system. And when we look at those incentives, we, we realize that for many, many years, they have become more and more misaligned with the ethos of good research, and they actually encourage the opposite of good research. They encourage quantity over quality, all the things that stand opposite to what we now define uh, as open science. Um, so uh, if, if, if listeners haven't read this book by uh, Richard Harris called Rigor Mortis, I would strongly um recommended because it really outlines these issues and these were the types of issues that were also presented to me back in the days when i started my phd in 2014 um and it and, and when you realize that the scientific system in a way is is broken then you have two options and one is to say well i have zero power uh, i'm nobody so i'll just be passive and let someone else sort it out or otherwise just let it be whatever it is or you have the second option, which is you decide that you can and you will try to, to make a difference, even if it's just a small difference. And I chose the second option. And what many of, I was lucky to be at the University of Cambridge at the time when they were starting many initiatives, such as the local data champion program. And they had many, many um, different uh, courses and seminars on data management, on, on transparency, um, reproducible research etc and i decided to attend those and i early on um realized that these were all ways of working that would actually make my own research better and by promoting it across to other scientists it was a way of improving science and the way science is done uh, again if you see science as a vocation if you see it as something that's supposed to improve human knowledge then you you actually care about making sure that it that 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 people um, that the way science is done aligns with what we expect from it. Um, so yeah, um, that's what got me into open science more and more. I would say uh, again, the right time, the right place, and probably the type of personality that that I that I have. I guess <laughs> it's interesting also that you actually took up the the op the opportunity of some of those. Um, uh, resources that you mentioned and the, and the, and the courses, et cetera, that were being, that being offered at Cambridge and that you, 
you didn't view them as something which was being kind of imposed on you that was irrelevant to your research. You actually saw that it could it could benefit your research. That's actually that's actually interesting. And I suppose it's a it's a testament not only to you but also to the um, you know to the way in which it was done at Cambridge. I, it sounds like it was probably done in a fairly sensitive way, which is which is critical if you're going to get researchers to to buy into these things um, because not everybody is as I think realistically as focused as, as you are on the, on the things that you've been describing. So, yeah. No, and that, that, that was also quickly the realization. And actually one of the, the, the things that was very clear early on was that um, despite all these great initiatives being available, not many researchers were actually engaging with them. And that's also partly because of the incentive structure. So if funders are not cause are not asking you to publish all your data openly, you know, all the data that go into a publication, uh, uh, for that go into the generation of publication figures, if those data are actually not supposed to be or, or expected to be deposited mandatory, then researchers obviously won't be paying much attention to the practices that are required for making these data publishable in, in the public domain. Um, now, in 2013 onwards, that was when funders started imposing open access mandates, and that's where everyone was suddenly uh, engaged in understanding what were those mandates and how do you make your research open access. So again, it goes to show that your engagement with these initiatives is also heavily dependent on external factors that determine what um, what will bring in money for your for, for your next round of research. Uh, so again getting engaged with this required a bit of self-discipline i guess and also this passion for 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 truth for for rigorous science but then you only need a few people to get excited about this to then spread the message around to others uh in the say in the institute so that's where and we can get back to this later that's where local champions are really key for getting the message across otherwise no matter how good the initiatives are within a university if they just remain centrally you know um uh if if you're if just located in a central office and 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 some really um great people uh are in charge of them no matter how great they are if they're not in touch with the regular researchers on the shop floor if you like then it will be very difficult for them to get the message the message across so you absolutely need um the local the local engagement but well this is the fair data podcast and and uh so fair the acronym uh, findable, accessible, interoperable, and uh, and reusable, uh, or reproducible, I guess you could have it that as well. Anyway, fair, FAIR data has played an increasingly prominent role in recent years in in discussions like this and thinking about, about research, reproducibility, and open science. So I'm always curious, how did, I, I always ask people, how did you first come across the concept, if you even remember, and how has your thinking about FAIR data evolved since the first time you did come across the concept? Um, so I don't know if I can remember exactly, you know, the specific time and location when it was the first time I saw the acronym and, and sort of fair data, but certainly the, the concept overall, um, was presented to me during those data management, um, events that I decided to attend at the University of Cambridge. And then I, um, as a local, um, champion for fair data and, and data management, I was organizing data management workshops locally at the Institute and had people coming and speak about this. You may have, you probably have heard about Marta Teperic. She's not at Cambridge anymore, but she used to be in, you know, she's very, uh, she, she was a huge advocate for, for, you know, good data management. Um, so a lot of those concepts come from 
engaging with the Cambridge team. Great. Yes, no, I know Marta. I have a huge admiration for her. She's she's fantastic, um, and she's been an inspiration and also a, a guide and a mentor to me as well. Um, so you know, you have a you you Ralitza, you have a talent which I have to say is not universally shared among researchers. Which I but I think people who are listening will sense that that's the case. Uh, you're able to really effectively communicate with people in research administration roles, people like like Marta. Uh, but but also other people who per- perhaps aren't quite as good as Marta is at, at communicating with researchers. So typically in these conversations on the Fair Data podcast, um, it often involves conversations with people in the research administrative or research services roles, and they reflect on how they engage with researchers. And it'd be interesting to hear your reflections on, on how um, and why you've been able to, in my view anyway, successfully engage with research and other university administrators, both as an advocate of, of open science and more generally as an advocate for um, for better management of research in the ways that we've been discussing? Yeah, well, that's a good question. And I think it probably boils down to three elements that sort of um, synergize. So the first one is what I mentioned earlier, realizing that this good and transparent data management is actually useful to me. So I need to realize that this is good for me to be able to tell others enthusiastically that I, I really think it's important. So that's key thing. The second thing is it's not just good for me. It's also good for science overall, because this type of transparency, whether or not there's a reproducibility crisis that is driven by poor practices, that can be discussed. But certainly if everyone is transparent about exactly what they have done, well, that at least will make it easier to troubleshoot whatever has gone wrong. And then the third element is to realize that uh, in order to engage other researchers, uh, you, um, or people in general with whatever topic uh, you may uh, want to engage them with, you they need to see that you're one of them. So researchers, especially the younger ones, I think are best engaged by someone who looks like them and speaks their language or someone who does the type of work that they do. And even within the research community, uh, you can only really engage those effectively engage those people who are working within a similar field to yourself because you can come up with examples that they can relate to so what i mean here is if you take for instance psychology or neuroscience where they've been far more advanced in terms of the open science uh, agenda you know far more than biomedical science scientists in, in in my field for example well when those researchers they come and present some of the initiatives that they're working with they actually sometimes lose out on say biology researchers because some of the initiatives are not directly relevant for the type of research that a biologist would do so you can see that even if you are a scientist it becomes difficult to engage other scientists who are in a completely different field then imagine if you're an administrator who is not even a scientist and you have all these good initiatives at hand but then the issue there is this transmit transmission of the signal so you need people who can translate whatever you want to say into the language that those researchers you want to engage with actually understand and care about. And ultimately, you need to convince them that this is good for them, this is beneficial to them. And the only way you really can do that is if you're one of them and you can showcase evidence for this type of, of benefits because you've experienced it yourself and you can you can show you, 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 you can show them the output and how you've benefited from adopting these practices doing the similar t- doing similar type of research to, to themselves. Okay, really interesting. Yeah, so just to pick up on a couple of, of thoughts I had listening to you there. So the so the domain 
you know, the different domains having different needs and also different kind of levels of, of maturity of, of adoption of, of research data management and open science. That's, that's interesting. So, and then the other thing is, is, is the communication between research administrators and, and researchers. And I, I think um, just an example, I'd be curious to get your view on it, but something I've noticed in particular in, um, well, the two countries I've noticed it in are, um, are Holland and, and Germany, where they're now beginning to embed um, domain uh, data, data stewards. There's a big data stewardship program and the data stewards, of course, are, are uh, kind of professional, uh, what do they call them? They're not the data, the ones at Cambridge aren't data. The data champions, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it kind of was inspired a bit from the, but yeah, they're more professional if you like, yeah. Right, and they're, but for, you know, for example, someone in a, a neurobiology project uh, is, they, they themselves have a PhD in neurobiology and then, but they're taking a data steward role and they're embedded in the project team from, from day one or pro probably even before day one, maybe when they put in the grant application. And so, so that's an effort to uh, do the kind of uh, outreach in a, in a very domain specific uh, and also a sympathetic way so that the, 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 the difference between research administration slash services and, and researcher uh, really falls away and you have someone who's, who's acting as a, as a bridge. Um, so I, I'm not aware of those things so much in the UK or the US, but do you think that uh, that's a, a relevant model for some domains? Do you think that's a good thing or? Uh, I, I, I certainly do. I, and whether it's a, uh, at such a formal level, uh, I mean, it's great if it can be implemented that way. But even just having uh, a program similar to the Data Champions uh, in Cambridge, I think would be absolutely terrific if most universities had that and you had a Data Champion, at least one Data Champion within each department and institute, you know, where you could have uh, the monthly newsletter with the little data management corner, open science corner, um, which is something that I, for example, did at my old institute in, in, in Cambridge. I think even small things like that are absolutely essential because it increases awareness and the awareness is, is, is spread by someone from the research group if you see what I mean, as opposed to from a central administrator where people tend to think, oh, this is just another rule that we have to comply with. It's a box ticking exercise or something like that. Um, so in fact, we wrote about this um, two, two, three years ago, almost now about, you know, how do we get towards widespread open research and insights from the Cambridge Data Champions and, and beyond. There was a blog post that um, uh, I contributed with uh, contributed to with um, people from the Open Research Office at, at, at Cambridge. Um, and that's where we also discussed these benefits of having a data champion program, or as you say, more formally, even data stewards, um, I think. Um, so the short answer is yes, I think that is a structure that would be hugely beneficial. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Interesting. So and then, and then of course, um, so that's looking at it kind of at the, at the project level or the or the, to some extent, lab lab level. And then another aspect of this, especially at, at very large institutions like UCL, for example, uh, where you have, um, we have not just multiple labs, but you have multiple institutes, departments, uh, schools, um, institutions, which are quite, are quite independent. Um, some of which are quite independent, some of which are more closely tied into the central structure. And it's, it's massive. 
and very multivaried. And, and then you have the issue of, of, of central initiatives uh, and how do they get, um, how, how does that kind of seep out or get communicated to um, these, inst- these sub-institutions, which are actually he- often very large, multivaried themselves uh, and, and have different levels of awareness, different levels of interest, different levels of resources they can deploy uh, to supporting um, fair principles and, and better data management. So I guess that's, I mean, I think that's probably uh, a big challenge uh, and it, it probably, I mean, I, for my, I would say it needs to be, it's only going to be tackled by, by top-down and bottom-up um, approaches kind of coming together in the middle at some point. But I mean, how would you, how would you think about that? So one of the things that are sort of vision that I have, and I don't know if it's even practically implementable, but I can't really see why not, uh, is to turn this um, sort of open science fair data discussion into the similar type of discussion that we have about health and safety. So individual institutes and departments, they have local health and safety committees. They're each member. They have a health and safety committee representative from each research group. Obviously, health and safety will mean different things to different scientific domains or research domains. And the same applies to uh, open science and fair data. Different research domains will have different requirements for, in terms of um, data management and you know, rigorous uh, research practices. So I don't quite understand why it is that at this stage we actually we don't have similar open research or, or, or open data uh, committees locally within institutes because those could be responsible for spreading a awareness of central university policies. Um, that are difficult to actually transmit as it currently stands. Uh, And they would also be uh, much better able at flagging potential issues and requirements that researchers, local researchers may have that are specific to their uh, discipline. So it will create this two-way dialogue and it will also uh, embed discussions of research culture and and I think data management is actually a key part of research culture, as I said, because for me, it's a quality control mechanism uh, for, for, for research. You know, that, that, that will all become part of, daily, uh, of the daily running of an institute or a department, if you like, if you have these committees and, and clear rules. So we have a lot of these types of rules and, 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 and infrastructure already there for health and safety. But um, when it comes to, you know, physical health and safety, but when it comes to the health and safety of data, if you like, or research in that sense, uh, they they seem to be missing. So moving forward, maybe that's one way in which one could join up some of these um, the top and the bottom bits of of the pyramid, if if you like. Yeah, that's a great suggestion, and that and that leads that, and that's an example that leads perfectly into into what what's going to be my my last question, um, which is uh, looking on the optimistic side. We all know what the challenges are. We discussed some of the challenges, but but what do you see as the as one or two of the key realizable opportunities for verification of data and open science in the next couple of years. And I guess it, what your suggestion for the institute level committees is, is, is actually one, but um, does anything else come to mind? Yeah, so I think none of these things would actually be implemented unless researchers uh, know that it matters for whether or not they're going to get money for their research, because obviously we're incredibly busy as researchers. And at some point, what you the time you invest in something really depends on how much that something is going to be beneficial for the progress of, of your research. And money is obviously always essential. So I think 
critically to realize verification of data and open science in, in, in general, we need to have funders on board. So similar to how open access was realized back in the days, well, that was that all happened really uh, quickly once funders made it mandatory. So I think once fair data, uh, as much as uh, once data become as uh, open as possible and as close as necessary as per funder requirements, then we'll be in a position uh, where people uh, will just, you know, automatically engage in these types of discussions uh, much more widely than what they do now, because it will actually be part of, of, of requirements for, you know, of the incentives for, for your research to, to, to progress. So having funders on board, you know, completely overhauling the current structure, the incentive structure uh, and promotion criteria, I think is uh, one of those actually quite realizable opportunities. And it's a really exciting time in terms of uh, in terms of that. We're already seeing many funders change their um, application criteria and things that you highlight. It's far less, uh, at least in the UK, uh, but also EU wide, um, there's less focus on on quantity still quite a bit of course but um, there is a move towards appreciating quality and appreciating open science and actively promoting um open science um i think they're realizing it really is an investment in in the future yeah absolutely and um and i think the uh in the us the the new nih data sharing policy which is coming into effect in january of next year seems to have really galvanized uh because gal- i've been observing this this area for a long time now, and as you say, um, the the funders and their policies are are critical. And I think the um, in the U.S. the the new this new NIH data sharing policy has really galvanized. Interestingly, it's really galvanized the research data management community, and uh, I think it's going to stimulate a lot more, uh, a lot a lot a lot more um, open science verification of data. And I think it's also going to be something which is going to stimulate institutions to provide better support, both both more and better support for data management and enhancing the kind of uh, the kind of better communication and and better cooperation between research data services people and researchers of the kind that uh, you know we've been discussing today. So it's happening on um, uh, on on really I would say probably on a on a global scale. So. Uh, yeah, good. Well, thank you so much, Relissa, for that uh, fascinating conversation. It's great. I I always find that these conversations are fantastic because I always learn new things, and 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 um, people always give me, you know, I, they share insights, and I'm there before I'm able to um, to to participate in in receiving the insights. And and you've been a sterling example of that. So 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 thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed that. Great. So that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. The Fair Data Podcast is provided by fairdatapodcast.org and produced by Meroz Ahmed. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, and and follow us on Twitter at Fair Data Podcast. New episodes are released every Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. UK, and 5 p.m. Central European time. Next week's guest is also from UCL. James Etherington is director of the UCL Advanced Research Computing Center. See you then.